Hello, my name is Christine Murray, Editor-in-Chief of The Developer, and welcome to The Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to design and develop cities worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings as much as the buildings themselves. At the Festival of Place, we brought together developers, designers, cities, local authorities, investors and planners to discuss what makes places that thrive. Over the next few weeks, we'll be posting some of the speeches and panel discussions. Hopefully, we'll see you at the festival next year, which takes place at Tobacco Dock in East London on the 7th of July. In this podcast, you'll hear me on stage at the festival in conversation with Dan Labad, Chief Executive of Lendlease and the future Chief Executive of the Crown Estate. It's my great pleasure to welcome to the stage Dan Labad, Chief Executive Officer of Europe for Lendlease. Um, and Dan and I have known each other for a while. We have. Yes. yes. But we haven't always been on the same side of the argument, so I'm really glad you agreed <laughs> to, to talk to me. We've had uh, lots of things we've agreed on and lots of things, but lots of things we haven't. So I think it's going to be a really good conversation to kind of talk. We're going to grapple with some of the things that... And we're still friends, yeah. <laughs> so in his previous role as Chief Executive Officer of International Operations in Europe, Dan was responsible for overseeing the expansion of work in Europe, America, and Asia. Your current role is focused on delivery of the European pipeline of work, um, but it was recently announced that you're leaving, of course, to join the Crown Estate for at least the next four years. And you began your career at Lendlease in 1997 in Australia, um, where you were Project Director for the expansion of Sydney Airport. You've also served as the director of the Green Building Council of Australia and as chairman of the UK Green Building Council. And sustainability has been something that you've talked about on many an occasion. Um, and your background is actually civil engineering with an MBA. So I'm going to start with a question, and then I'm going to go. We're going to talk for a bit, and then I'm going to go Jeremy Kyle, and I'm going to walk around the audience with the microphone. Uh, so you'll have a chance to. Um, that's like not a good comment now, Jeremy Kyle, is it? Sorry. I'm going to go Christine Murray, and I'm going to wander around the audience with the, with the microphone. But I'm going to start with kind of an open question. I'm going to ask you, what have you learned during the last 14 years it was you've been at, at Lendlease, but the last few years where you've been working really at the heart of the debate that has been coming up today about the regeneration of, of urban centers? So what, you know, what are some of the things that you've learned through that experience? It's a really um, good question. I think um, you look at how much the world has changed in the last 14 years. I've been in, the, in, in Europe for 14 years and just coming on 14 years. I've uh, been with Lendlease for uh, on and off for 22. And um, the world has changed. And you know what? one of the biggest things that we needed to decide a number of years ago was whether we wanted to play in the urban space because what we're dealing with is, you know, ultimately cities that attract a lot of people uh, demographically, a lot of uh, inward demographics, but also a lot of attracting demographics that force the whole system to buckle. It leads to things like inequality, or certainly a contributor to inequality, um, opportunity as well, uh, but it's a very, very complex place to operate. I think a lot more complex than even 14 years ago. Uh, you add to that technology. Um, you add to that in a local context, things like Brexit. So I think what we've learned moving from what was a bricks-and-mortar developer to one where you realise that you've got to learn by doing, um, you've got to be very, very open and, and try to be as humble as you can be, and you need to work in partnership. Ultimately, 
the biggest thing I think we've learned is that the key is partnerships with government, be that local authority or other parts of government, uh, with the third sector, um, but most importantly with the community. Uh, you don't do that, you, know, you ignore it at your peril. And I think the last speaker touched on that a little bit with regards to the work Quintain are doing out at Wembley is an example uh, of a developer trying to understand some of the broader impacts of their work. And I think the, you know, if you sort of said, what does that sum, what does that come down to? I think it comes down to the fact that your license to operate doesn't come from anywhere internal. It doesn't come from your shareholders. It comes from the way you impact on communities. That's been the biggest learning. There, um, it's come up many times today about that great distrust in communities of developers um, and of urban redevelopment in general. And and you've kind of faced that at Haringey. You were booed at the public committee. Um, and there's, of course, a lot of press around Elephant and Castle and various perspectives and very passionate feelings. Um, so I guess... I would ask, what has bred that distrust, in your view? Uh, I think that's a very complex question. I think, ultimately, the industry hasn't helped itself. I'll start there. I think there's regressive parts of the industry, and I think there's also progressive parts of the industry. I would count us in the progressive parts of the industry. I think um, when you look at you know, what we've done over the years, we're always trying to push the boundaries. Um, we are also looking, listening to our local authority partners in terms of what they need, and I think by the sounds of it, there was a conversation around Section 106, the amount of money that goes into developments and whether that's spent effectively. Um, but ultimately, the developer is the lowest common denominator. So I think um, you know, institutions generally, be it government, be it the private sector, private sector being at the, the as I said, the lowest common denominator, um, and other institutions, for that matter, are generally distrusted at the moment. And I think that's a deep issue running through society. And the fact that, you know, I can live a life like everybody else, but then I work for an organisation that's distrusted, um, is something that's been incredibly confronting. But my view on it is that's not something there to be fought against. I think it's a reflection of democracy. You know, it's it's... It's the country pushing back on, or cities pushing back, or parts of cities pushing back, uh, community groups pushing back on what they're not happy with. And I think we've seen that run through more than just property. We see it, you know, that's what ultimately partly Brexit, you know, is all about. Uh, and I think we have a responsibility if you hold any office of power in the private sector or influence or in the public sector to listen to that and to look at what needs to change and embrace it. So to answer your question, Christine, I, I, you know, I, I think it's a much broader conversation on what the root causes of those things are. I think there are many. But ultimately, the reality is that that does exist. It exists for good reason. And my, my, I guess what I say to myself is don't dwell on trying to self-justify that you can or can't be trusted. Continue to go out there and do what you need to do to earn your licence to operate. Change the way you need to do. Be humble and learn. Because coming back to the challenge that we're facing, this urban challenge is running away from us all. It's not running towards us. Local authorities aren't going to fix it on its own. Um, the community is not going to fix it on its own. And neither is the private sector. We have to all work together in new forms of partnership in order to have any chance of resolving this in ways that are equitable and ways that work, defining what good looks like. Um, so, you know, running away and blaming is not the answer in my mind. So 
have you changed your approach over the years through this this kind of rise of distrust? Is there a difference between the way that you go into developing now as opposed to how you might have done ten years ago? Yeah, I think I think per, at a personal level, if you speak to people that have known me for a long time, I mean, you've known me for a long time, and I think we could have had similar conversations ten years ago. But I think I think even when I look at what we were facing 10 years ago versus today, the world has changed. And I'll give you a very simple example, but I probably could give you 20 examples like this. We're always looking to change. And one example is um, even the most progressive developers do what I would sort of describe as over-curating for all the right reasons. They want to reach out. They want to come up with solutions that work for local people. But... Um, come up with A to Z solutions, thinking, oh, there's a gap, I think I can fill it, there's a cultural solution, there's an engagement solution, there's an artistic solution, it might even be a place or an aesthetic solution that we think can work, and there's the answer from A to Z, something we've never done before, great. And I think five or six years ago, that was seen as leading edge. We recently, and this wasn't my idea, this was the idea of the grassroots, uh, grassroots movement within Lend-Lease from our young people that wanted to tackle loneliness and place. And to cut a very long story short, uh, we ran a loneliness lab with 50 other organisations facilitated by a non-profit and we didn't curate it at all. All we said was we want this concept of loneliness, so social exclusion, social isolation and place explored. And what came out of it were two things in simple terms. Firstly, it was a a two-week idea hack uh, with 50 organisations from all walks of life contributing. And what came out of it was a number of ideas that we could never have thought of on our own. And we're now piloting those ideas in various places across our portfolio. In fact, we're trying some of them globally. But the other piece for me that came out, which was just as powerful, was why don't we run all of our initiatives these, these, you know, this way? Why do we curate, over-curate anything? Why don't, why don't we spark things and let diverse groups of people who care about a particular place work it out for themselves. We can help it, we can fund it, we can help guide it, um, but don't over-curate it. So I think moving forward you're going to see certainly Lend-Lease you know, spark things but not actually overreach and allow sort of the destiny to come through collaborations that we've never allowed before. But, you know, it's one example. And that's research that you wouldn't have done in the past. You wouldn't have looked into kind of a social outcome as much. We would have definitely looked at a... So say that loneliness, using that as an example, what we probably would have done is got a whole whole group of experts in, gotten their opinions on what's required, done some consultation, probably not broad enough, and we would have come up with an answer. And we would have said, let's roll this out across the portfolio, as opposed to actually letting a diverse group of people who care and have a view and have better expertise than we do to come together and work it out. And then we take their solutions and we implement their solutions with them as opposed to we deciding effectively in isolation. Yeah. I, Anne Power said two things today that I thought was really interesting in her, her speech earlier. The first is that she talked about how placemaking in the past has inevitably increased inequality. And she talked about how you can't push developers to build luxury flats in order to build social housing and that it impedes the creation of community because people who are ultra-rich 
um, don't have the same needs as those who are uh, perhaps below or at the poverty line. So I just, I just wondered what you thought about those. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, there's a number of things. I think the, re the reason why you've got inequality in cities is much bigger than just place. Place, in some ways, rides the inequality and, and sometimes adds to it. There's no doubt about that. But I think it's much broader than what, you know, we control in, the, in this room. Um, you know, the, the desire to attract global capital, looking at where, you know, money wants to put and distribute itself globally and where it wants to go, all of that, you know, leads to to um, elements of inequality unless there's some form of regulation to protect. And, and I think, but when it comes to sort of what, what we do, there's no doubt that I think we've got a lot more work to do as a collective industry working with communities on defining what good looks like. That's not an easy thing to do, but I think we go into these things, coming back to my loneliness lab example, not developers, but it might be parts of government and, and parts of the private sector, sometimes developers over curating. And that's, I'm not, that's, that, that's probably, um, it's not a criticism because I think we're dealing with complex issues, but everyone has a different view on what good looks like. And I think what we've got to do is work out how we come together when we're looking at a place, what the purpose of change is, and how we can develop a fair process that helps define what good looks like. So I think that's the first thing. And I think any process that, in, that, that, that tries to define that will have equality at its core. I can't see, especially in, 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 in London. Um, coming to the affordable housing piece, I, I do think that you know, ultimately, when you look at different strands of capital, the government doesn't have enough money to solve all these issues on its own, which is why private sector finance is a requirement, why bank debt is required as part of that finance. And there's a cost of that capital, and the cost is more expensive than government capital, and therefore there needs to be a return on that capital that's invested. I think the notion of pegging affordable housing in isolation to private housing is interesting, but we don't peg the contribution towards hospitals or towards roads or towards schools and other public-supported infrastructure. We don't peg that to the provision of of a private physical element like housing, but we do with affordable housing and it's falling short. Now, don't get me wrong, I have to be careful sitting up here as a developer. That's not code for we shouldn't pay our way. You know, I, I, think, I, I think there's a lot to learn from recent experiences as I, as I talked about a few moments ago. It's not code for that, but what it is code for is we equally shouldn't lump all of the obligation on to the private sector because the demand and the need in that area, given where we are, is much greater than what private provision can supply on its own. Um, there's been a comment two or three times today saying developers need to accept less profit. Would you agree? Um, I think developers need to demonstrate that their profit comes from purposeful pursuits. I think um, you know less profit. If you can get capital that's cheaper, then there'll be less return on that capital. But if you put your money in the bank, you know you want an interest return on that, and um, that's relatively risk-free. If you put your money into development, it's quite risky, and so the return is higher. Um, so I think what's more important, what will what will produce more, is holding developers to account to ensure, and holding local authorities to account to ensure that money that is invested is spent in the right ways, that the processes actually start to answer some of the questions that I've talked about, and that there's a purposeful pursuit of profit, not profit you know, in isolation. So for example, 
when um, you know, if a developer's making all its money from help to buy and, and executives are bringing home squillions of pounds from what is effectively a government provision, that's not right. But equally, um, we've put a lot of money into developments and provided it to government that I would argue could be a lot better spent than it has been. And so I think what's important is that we don't allow people to extract super profit. They need to get a reasonable return on their investment like everybody would for an investment, but at the same time that money is spent effectively where it can uh, do the most good for purpose. Do you think the development community is waking up to the dramatic changes we need in a climate emergency? Um, slowly. I think... Um, I, I think, you know, this, this, the sustainability movement, I think, uh, talking about sort of the green agenda, um, having chaired the Green Building Council, and this is probably, a, you know, everything I say is, is a bias, as a biased view, but I think through the early 2000s, we did really, really well as, a, as an industry to really get at the forefront of what green building was like. I think the climate challenge is a completely different paradigm for business generally, including our sector. And I think um, when you look at you know, d developers like us and a number of companies across the country and across the world signing up to TCFD, which is um, looking at the way your business strategy aligns to a world that is up to two degrees warmer and what you can do to mitigate and how you deal with resilience um, we've signed up to that. A number of other organisations have. I know organisations are picking that up around the world. That is fundamentally going to change the way organisations think about their business. Um, so I think the movement is there, but I think we're at the beginning of that movement. If you were to ask me what are the two biggest things that are going to affect our industry moving forward and affect the urban landscape moving forward, in addition to dealing with inequality, it's climate and it's technology. Technology which kind? I just think data and just the way that data is taking over the world and the way that it's used. Um, you know, I think the way we build... I tell you, we're, we're, we've won the overstation development rights at Houston. Um, it's a 30-year project. Uh, we're not going to be... can't imagine building there the way we build today. can't imagine developing there the way we develop today. And we need to be thinking about generations in the future, which is why everything we're talking about today is so fundamentally important around defining what good looks like because... You know, we can't collectively afford to get that wrong, not from a climate perspective, from a technology perspective, or from an equality perspective. So I'm, I'm going to ask you one more question, and then I'm going to turn it over to you. So this is your warning for questions to get ready. Um, what does good look like? I think, in my mind, good is a, is a process whereby um, you... We drive, we drive collaboration towards a purpose. And, and one of the things I think we don't do well enough is ask the why question. You know, one of the things that we're doing, we're doing it at a business, as a business at the moment is we're asking ourselves the why question. You know, why, what's our purpose? Why do, why do we exist? And I think you need to do that around place as well. What's the purpose of this place in representing its past, being authentic to its past? What's the purpose of this place in terms of dealing with inequality? Uh, what's the purpose of this place in terms of dealing with the future and the fact that people who experience it, um, some of which haven't been even born today, what are their needs going to be? Um, and obviously climate is a big, a big input into that because for future generations to have the quality of life that we have, we have to make some big decisions today. 
Um, so I think defining what good looks like is asking the why question and getting consensus around that. Um, and two, setting a collaborative process to work in a direction that moves towards that, but a direction that is given the flexibility to change and to fail. And, and I think, you know, again, coming back to the loneliness lab example, one of the great things about that is the other learning is we can run different interventions on how we reduce social isolation by using three or four of the examples that came out of that lab. We can keep the lab going and come up with new ideas. We can bring in input from what we're trying. But if something doesn't work, you shut it down. And if something does work, you grow it. And I think we need to think about the creation of place in a similar way where we're not sitting there and saying, look, there's the master plan and this is it. And let's, for the next 15 years, continue to justify why we did this, even though the world is changing. Let's just keep our heads down. I think, I think in getting to good, good isn't a destination that you get to um, over the next sort of three or four months running a process. Good is a, a culture that you bring into a project that starts with the why question and then gives yourself permission to continue to evolve as the world evolves around you. Wow. And unlike the way you need to run businesses these days. Can I take three questions? So I'm going to take them together. Who's got their arms up? Good. One, two, three. Okay. I'm going to do you in order. Um, thanks very much, Dan and Christine. Um, a point and then a question. Um, the point is I was one of the people at the Loneliness Lab um, workshops, and I rocked up expecting to bump into Joe Bloggs and uh, Patricia Smith and God knows who else, and walked into a room of complete strangers, and it was so refreshing to be amongst people who were not the usual suspects actually coming up with these solutions. So, so you know, I, I, I commend what you're talking about there, Dan. Um, my question is, uh, this time last week, I was at the British Property Federation conference where we'd spent the afternoon um, passing the, the perception survey that they just had done at British Property Federation, and people like you, Dan, your colleagues, Helen Granger, and so on and so forth, were talking about what the industry needs to do to change perception, you know, and Christine's touched on that. Looking at what's happening with what we're talking about today, looking back at what we talked about at VPF last week, do we actually have the skills and the right capabilities inside the industry to do what's necessary? Don't answer yet. Do I have to remember it? <laughs> I'll remember it. Dan, you've, you've had this fantastic career in one organi amazing organization, and you be, you're running a significant business. You're moving in January to a business which is more modest in scale, a lot of history. What's the greatest challenge in your mind uh, for you personally going in changing from one organization to a very different organization in the role of chief executive don't answer that either <laughs> hi um we heard from akil before about if meanwhile is the quest uh, sorry if meanwhile is the answer what is the question how do you deal with meanwhile uses on your sites that become so successful, they're almost challenging the permanent solution that's being proposed. Okay, so start with Patricia's question. Do we have the skills that we need to deliver the future of this industry? No, no, we don't. Um, 
I mean, what's interesting in Lend in my own experience with Lend-Lease is that um, we've, um, uh, there's a project that we've got in Australia called uh, Barangaroo, which is a, a major regeneration of the waterfront that's now almost complete, about 90% um, through. And when we won the bid, uh, we didn't have any of the capabilities to deliver what we'd said we'd had, but our organisation has always been able to go and that's how we've innovated. Um, whether that's the way we integrated with the community, the way we dealt with um, pulling in seawater and cooling the buildings, four million square feet of commercial space, uh, the way we de dealt with and supported Indigenous training um, uh, and other forms of vocational education and training through the FE sector, um, and the way that we've commercialised some of the um, um, infrastructure that otherwise would have been a cost. So I, I, I think, I think uh, we don't have the skills, and that's a 2007 example. Sitting here today in 2019, we definitely don't have the skills. And two, two, two key things. One, when you look at what... I, I say, I was asked uh, a couple of months ago by a young person in our business, you know, Dan, what, you know, when, when will this volatile period be over and things be back to normal? And my answer was, this is the new normal. Um, we're living in a world that normal is volatile. And um, as business and as an industry, we need to we need to um, survive and, and make sense out of chaos in how we run our industry. And I think there's three things that we need to look at there. One is um, skills where we can have an open mind to the future, and that generally is better place coming from young people and the way young people have a say in the way businesses operate. Um, I'm not an advocate of paternal leadership, paternalistic leadership. I think you know, to be successful in this world, you need to empower your people to have their say. Um, and you need, to, you need, you know, creative ways of working out where talent exists. Secondly, our industry is full of men. Um, and we certainly won't have the skills uh, that we need if we're underrepresenting um, half of the global population. And that it goes further than that. It's actually reflecting the communities that we operate in. It's actually, because I don't think, coming back to what good looks like, you can't define good by everyone in a corporate suit dressed like me today, marching into a community and saying, this is how we're gonna do things here. Your workforce has to reflect where you're operating. So I think that's the second thing. And thirdly, technology. Um, we, you know, skills are gonna be displaced and we're gonna have to help retrain um, and we're gonna have to think about how we remain agile. One of the things that we're doing at Lend-Lease, uh, we have been doing over the last three years, in order to um, help set the foundation for gender balance in the future is if, we, if we're recruiting out of engineering school and building school, it's very difficult today to achieve gender balance. Um, and there's a big, big piece of work that we have to be part of to go into schools and into the university system to change that in, in STEM subjects as we know. Um, but the other side of it is we've started to recruit people from all walks of life that don't have building and engineering and developers and developing and surveying backgrounds. And, um, and we're achieving a gender balance because we can teach people how to build and how to develop. Um, in some ways that's, I don't want to underplay it, but that's the easy bit. What we need is we need people who are creative, understand technology, are agile, um, and understand the communities in which we're operating in. So I think there's a long way to go on the skills gap in, in our industry, Patricia. Um, your challenges that you're facing, uh, the biggest challenge that you're facing in your new role at the Crown Estate. 
Um, I, look, I think I think what I'd rather do is answer the question as to you know one of the contributing factors in in taking the role. I think I think. Um, I've had the fortune to build Lendlease into a very successful business here in Europe, and that's not because of me, that's because I've had an incredible team around me. Um, and when the opportunity for the Crown Estate presented itself, um, I felt that um, having been in one place for such a long time, coming back to this concept of agility, I wanted to test my own agility. Um, I want to um, put myself. I say to young people, and they say to me, you know, how do, how do you, you know, what do you, what do you recommend we do in order to move ahead? I said, always feel that you're in, you know, a position of discomfort, and that you're learning, and and you know, that's that's what Crown gives me. I think I have a lot to offer, um, but at the same time, I've done it also, so you know, I can learn, and uh, and I'm not expecting um, that type of shift to be easy, but I'm relishing the opportunity, and I can't wait to join the team. Say your final um, question of that mean, trio. Meanwhile use? Yeah, what do you do when your meanwhile becomes, people love your meanwhile and they don't want it to go away? It's a great, great question because we've been trying for years to get meanwhile use to work and now we're getting it to work and now we're like, oh, what do we do? And, um, well, I think there's, I'll, I'll give you, uh, I guess, two examples. Um, we've had, um, I, think, I think ultimately what you've got to do from the outset is plan meanwhile use so you can turn it into permanent use. You have to, it has to be in your planning. You have to think, if this comes back to my point about growing what works, if something's working as a meanwhile use, to then shut it down is a complete travesty. And the learning is, from the very beginning, plan what you do if something actually works. So we had um, the Artworks Cafe out at Elephant that is... Um, that has been hugely successful, a lot more successful than, than we thought it would be. Incredibly difficult to get off the ground, but once it got off the ground, started to incubate a number of businesses, some of which are still at the elephant. But, but then we had to change it. We weren't ready for that change. We did a great job of the change, but we could have been more ready if we'd planned for it at the beginning. And the other is the Employment and Skilling Centre at the Elephant and Castle, which has been hugely successful, um, put um, hundreds of local people into work who otherwise wouldn't have had access to those opportunities. Um, and we are going to do everything we can to turn that into permanent. Uh, we're fighting very hard to do that, and we will. I think moving forward, to answer your question specifically, is plan meanwhile use to be permanent. And if it doesn't work, you shut it down. If it does work, make it permanent. That's good advice. I'm going to take three more, and then we have to close. So I've got one here. And do you want to do We're going to do it in trio number two. Anyone want to take that last question? <coughs> no, they want to have a drink. We're going to do two. Hi, Dan. Uh, American presidents uh, traditionally leave a letter when they're leaving office. What will your letter left on the desk say to your successor? I think, I think well, we, oh, you're not allowed to answer. I'm not allowed to answer, OK. I had it. I'm going to forget it now. <laughs> yeah, hi there. Yeah. About the capital markets, do you have any um, activism pushed through from the funders there? Is it simply about return on investment? Great question. Do you want to do your letter last? Do return on investment first? Right. Um, the answer is yes. So if you talk to any chief executive in um, the listed space today and you ask them about conversations they're having with um, capital today versus five years ago, uh, I think you'll get broadly uh, a general view that um, social responsibility, climate change, 
uh, and long-term thinking is now a key part of it because um, like a lot of organisations, and this comes back to the power of democracy, um, reputation is usually, if not the highest risk on a corporate risk register, it's sort of the top three. Uh, and uh, you know, one of the things that with social media these days, putting the power into customers' hands, um, you know, and there's great, there's example after example now that that uh, comes back as to what happens when you get that wrong. It can bring companies down. So capital is very, very interested in that. In that, boards are also getting more interested in in that as well in terms of how they ensure culture um, parallels process because you can have the best processes in an organisation to ensure compliance, but if your culture doesn't match that, you know, it'll rip that process apart. Um, so the answer is yes. The other thing that's growing more and more is uh, the area of impact investing, uh, where capital, so you know, if you think you have philanthropic capital that gives money for um, no return, it's, it's charitable giving um, outright, right through to uh, what you require for risk. There's a whole band in between that's growing uh, more and more called impact in investing where um, organisations are willing to um, receive a lower return impact in return for measurable social and environmental impact. Uh, and so, um, and we're looking to access that funding at Lend-Lease more and more. Uh, we've, we've got one project in Italy at the moment where we've done a deal with um, a consortium of banks. So to just give you the, the way that it works very simply, say we were borrowing 100 million euro, I, and they, that was to come from five banks, four banks and normal market banks, and they, they've said to us, um, you know, this, we want a 6 or 7% return on it, whatever it is. And the last bank has said, we actually want a 4% want a return. But the difference between the 4% and the 7% on that last 20 million, which works out to be two or three million euro, we want you to spend on social initiatives in the community. So it's a very simple example, but that's, that space is growing. So if you think of affordable housing, and you think of areas where um, you're providing a lot of social impact, and in fact, when we go back retrospectively, and we look at some of the things that we've put in place in, on, like for example, the Skilling and Employment Initiative or the Artworks Initiative at the Elephant and Castle, they would have historically been um, eligible for impact investing, which means we would have, coming back to the question earlier about developers asking for, more, for less profit, it's a way of actually attracting a lower cost of capital because you're doing social and environmental good and being able to spend the difference on social and environmental good. And that's growing. Um, so, Dan, what is your letter, your parting letter to your successor? Um, I think just very, very simply something I've always believed in is, you know, you're there to serve. You know, leadership is a, a responsibility. It's not a right. Uh, and, and I think, um, you know, I've always believed in serving the cause. Um, and I think that's very, very important moving forward. And, in fact, I feel that young people in particular um, are holding more senior leaders to account in that regard because they're looking for that type of leadership. So that would be, that would be my words. So that just leaves me to thank you very much as our closing session. Can we all thank Dan, please? For... Thank you. This podcast has been brought to you by The Developer, produced by Simon Mercer, with music by Fortet. I'm Christine Murray, and you can reach me on Twitter at, at TC Murray.